We continue on in our sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel. Looking at 1 Samuel 22, verse 6 through 23, a sermon I have entitled, The Surging Sinfulness of King Saul. In 1530, in a town near Moscow, Russia, the man who would become known as Ivan the Terrible was born. When he first came into power as the Tsar of Russia, he was known simply as Ivan IV. And historians largely agree that his early years as a leader in Russia were effective. Various difficulties throughout his reign, including famine and drought and war, saw his leadership deteriorate along with Russia's fortunes. As he continued in his role as Tsar, Ivan's insecurity and paranoia grew, perhaps exacerbated by his wife's death and the betrayal of a close friend. The later years of his reign were marked by emotional outbursts and deranged behavior. He would establish his own personal militia, who he employed whenever he wanted a perceived traitor dealt with. Ivan's delusions led to brutal actions against suspected rivals and against his own people, resulting in the widespread destruction and loss of life. For whatever reasons they surface, insecurities and suspicions and delusions in the lived experience of a leader spell disaster for those under his or her authority. As we have heard in today's passage, King Saul is on a trajectory similar to the trajectory historians ascribe to Ivan the Terrible. We see in Saul an insecure man who is becoming increasingly suspicious and increasingly delusional and who treats those who are under his authority with increasing brutality. The sinfulness of Saul is further accentuated as David's virtues become increasingly apparent. Let us consider first the events in verses one through nine. Saul confronts his people, verses six through 10. Saul's insecurities lead him into deeper sin as he lashes out against his people. Now the initial image in this chapter, or at least in this passage that we have of Saul, seems to be one of royal competence and strength. Saul is depicted as a figure of kingly robustness. He is seated on a hill in the royal city. He has a spear in his hands. His powerful officials are all around him. The author, however, is quickly going to indicate to the reader that appearance does not necessarily equal reality. Saul is exposed as being weak and incompetent, a poor excuse for a king. We can see that Saul is insecure, and his insecurity gives rise to suspicions and delusions. I like Desiring God contributor John Bloom's definition of insecurity. He wrote, what we typically mean by insecure is not just a circumstantially induced fear, but a fear so recurrent that we refer to it as a state of being. We talk of being insecure, or we might say so-and-so is an insecure person. And what we mean by insecure is a feeling of significant lack of self-confidence 
or a powerful fear of others' disapproval or rejection or a chronic sense of inferiority. Saul's state of being is one of insecurity. It is one of a lack of self-confidence. It is one of a fear of others. And this is chronic. He's in a chronic state of inferiority, and it's making him increasingly unhinged. In verse 8, he accuses his bureaucrats, who happen to be from his own tribe, He accuses them of conspiring against him. And there is, in fact, no evidence of anyone conspiring against him. He also accuses his officials and counselors of not caring about his well-being, another accusation that has no grounds. His insecurities are pushing him beyond mere suspicion. He is becoming delusional. Again, in verse 8, we read that Saul believes David is... At the very moment he is speaking, lying in wait for him that he might kill him. Now his officials, those who are close to him, those who have supported him, those who are from his own tribe, really are flabbergasted. They do not even argue for their own innocence. It is as if the suggestion is so preposterous that they won't even dignify it with a response. The only one who speaks is Doeg, the Edomite, who, as we suspected last week, was witness to David's time in Nob and therefore relates David's actions, as well as Ahimelech's, to Saul. Now, the degradation of Saul as a king, and in fact as a man, is tough to watch. His insecurity is getting the better of him. And we see in both history and fiction that those in power who succumb to insecurity see tragic results in their leadership. Think of Rome and Emperor Nero and his insecurities and suspicions that led to his own downfall. Think of Hitler during World War II. His paranoia undermined his dreams of world dominance. I often refer to Macbeth. Macbeth is a king from fiction whose insecurity led to his downfall. Everything in this passage is pointing to the fact that Saul is following that same path. Now, the experience of insecurity is something most of us would admit to being acquainted with. And some experience this as an occasional aberrant struggle, while others wrestle with this more regularly, something that they have to deal with constantly. As believers, we can and we should look to the gospel of Jesus Christ as a remedy for our insecurities. Sometimes we are insecure because of our relationship with others or perhaps our lack of relationship with others. And yet the gospel reminds us that it is the answer for those who feel alone. For those who feel alone like orphans or those who feel alienated like strangers. In Christ and through his life, death, and resurrection, we become aware of the fact that we have been adopted by God and we are not isolated and we are not alone. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18 and 19 says, For through him, Christ, we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then, 
You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Sometimes it's our failures in life that lead us into thoughts and patterns of insecurity. But the gospel undermines that response because as Paul said, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8, 38. Even our failures cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. With the king over all creation and his infinite love being poured out on us, what do we have to be insecure about? Sometimes our weakness and inadequacy for what the trials of life demand lead us into insecurity. But the message of the gospel to our weakness and our inadequacy is heard in the words of Jesus and Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 9 through 10, where we read, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Sometimes we feel insecure because of a general sense of insignificance and unimportance, to which the gospel says, wait one minute. You were chosen by God in Christ, according to John 15, 16, and you are uniquely appointed for his church that she might fulfill all God has called her to, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 18. And so let me encourage you, believer, every insecurity you struggle with has its answer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Identify your insecurities and search scripture for their remedy in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And then pray those gospel promises, leaning into them daily, preaching them to yourself regularly. Because brothers and sisters, our identity is not found in our insecurities. It's found in the blood of Jesus. Saul is insecure, and yet he looks for no divine foundation for resisting the degrading effect of those sinful insecurities. And so let's consider some of those now. Point number two, Saul condemns his priests, verse 11 through 19. Saul sins grievously against God's servants. Saul's maniacal mind concludes from Doeg the Edomite's testimony that the conspiracy against him, this conspiracy that doesn't point to any truth, Yet there is a conspiracy against him in his mind, and now it's far greater than he had previously imagined. Initially, this conspiracy was simply David who was after him. And it became David and Jonathan. Then David and Jonathan and those who were joined uh, or joined to him 
from some of the members of his officials. And finally, this imagined conspiracy against him now contains hundreds of people, including the entire priestly establishment at Nob. Doeg insisted that the priest Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for David, as well as giving him provisions and arming him with a sword. And Saul makes those very accusations against the priest. And he does not deny them. He does, however, deny their significance, and he denies that they prove some sort of treason. I think like the officials, Ahimelech was incredulous. And yet he gave a defense of his action. First, like Jonathan, he advocates for David, saying David was far from being Saul's enemy, but was rather Saul's loyal servant, the son-in-law of the king and the captain of his bodyguard. He reminds him that David is a highly respected member of Saul's household. Second, Ahimelech indicates his actions were routine. He had inquired for David before. There was nothing nefarious going on. Third, the priest affirms his fidelity to Saul, referring to himself twice as Saul's servant. And fourth and finally, Ahimelech denies any involvement in any rivalry between Saul and David. However, unwilling to let facts get in the way of his fury, Saul determines that Ahimelech and his entire family, of, uh, entire family are guilty and he pronounces a sentence against them. What happens next is telling. We read, And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. This is the second time in the book of 1 Samuel, that Saul's people refused to obey a ridiculous order. They wouldn't kill Jonathan, and they will not kill the priests. It was obvious to them there was no conspiracy against the king, and thus the priests had no reason to die. And they clearly respected God's appointed intermediaries, and they would not execute them. However, as an Edomite, Doag had no qualms about obeying the order. We read, Doag the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And the slaughter did not terminate with the death of 85 priests. Apparently Saul also approved the murder of the inhabitants of Nob, including men, women, children, and livestock. This is a heinous action against God's priests, against their families and their communities, and against God himself. Now this atrocity points us to two conclusions, one that is obvious and another that is not as much. First, Saul is obviously degenerating into an evil, malicious despot. His insecurity has led him down a path in which his frenzied suspicion and his frantic delusions have resulted in iniquities that are reminiscent of God's greatest enemies. Secondly, and not as conspicuous, is what this tells us about God. A careful reader or listener 
will remember that the termination of the family of Eli, to whom Ahimelech belonged, was prophesied earlier in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2, 31 through 33. Several weeks ago, we looked at this, and we read, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. You see, at the center of these evil events is a God who again shows himself sovereign. As we considered a couple weeks ago, God is even sovereign over the evil deeds of men. He fulfills his promise to judge the house of Eli and demonstrates to the reader, even if Saul doesn't see it, that his sovereign will cannot be thwarted. Now, he is not blamable for the evil that is done. Saul is, and Doeg is. But God is sovereign over it, in the sense that it does not occur outside his control. I shared an application two weeks ago that focused on God's sovereignty over evil. We can make another application along those lines this morning, which might be helpful for some of you who are still unconvinced about that position in regards to God's sovereignty over evil. That position was introduced with a quote by Canadian theologian D.A. Carson, which is worth repeating. And some of you are thinking, he's not going to read that quote again, is he? <laughs> oh, yes, he is. This is what D.A. Carson said. To put it bluntly, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside the bounds of his sovereignty. Yet, the evil is not morally chargeable to him. It is always chargeable to the secondary agents, to secondary causes, those who actually do it. On the other hand, God stands behind good in such a way that it not only takes place within the bounds of his sovereignty, but it is always chargeable to him and only derivatively to secondary agents. If this sounds just a bit too convenient for God, my initial response, though there is more to be said, is that according to the Bible, this is the only God there is. So here's the application if you are unsure about this concept or if, in fact, you are against it. And the application comes in the form of a question. What exactly is the alternative that you think is a more faithful account of what is happening? I think the options that are available are not tenable. Do you think God isn't sovereign over evil? That is not a biblical stance. Do you think God is blamable for evil? That is not a defensible position either. On one hand, you're left with an impotent God who is at the mercy of evil forces. And on the other hand, you have an evil tyrant of a deity who is complicit with evil. 
Neither of those gods are worth or worthy of worship. And so as you work out the problem of evil and a sovereign God, honestly assess if there is any other way of seeing this that maintains a fidelity to what the Bible reveals, to what it reveals about God. I don't think there is any other explanation that does justice to the biblical record. The condemnation of Ahimelech and the resultant punishment against so many people reveals the unchanging and unchallenged sovereignty of God and at the same time exposes the rapid corruption and decline of Saul. And the decline of Israel's current king is further emphasized by the virtuous actions of Israel's future king. And we finish with that this morning. Point number three, David consolidates his rise. Verse 22 through 23, David demonstrates the attributes of a godly king. Now before we deal with the verses that remain, it is worth again considering this week a psalm that deals directly with this situation. Psalm 52 sheds some light on David's character. The superscription of Psalm 52 is as follows. To the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doag, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. This is talking about this passage and this event. And we can see through David's analysis in this psalm a revelation of what kind of man he is. In Psalm 52, David wisely discerns the actions of Doak. He says in verses one through four, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Then in verses five through seven, we see David's faith in God emphasized. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction? And then the final verses of Psalm 52 highlight Dave's, David's close relationship with Yahweh. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I'll wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. David is demonstrating that he is clearly a man after God's own heart. He abhors evil. God's enemies are his enemies and he trusts in the Lord. So we see that Psalm 52 reiterates David's character. And David's character and his virtue is also clear in the final verses of chapter 22. In God's providence, one of Ahimelech's sons survives. Abiathar is the lone surviving representative of Eli's house. We know that there would be one survivor because it was prophesied there would be. 
And he becomes high priest upon his father's death. And though Abiathar lays the blame squarely at Saul's feet, David owns his part since he recognizes his actions have contributed to the tragedy. David admits as much saying, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all persons of your father's house. Further to David's credit, he extends security and protection to Abiathar. This is in contrast to Saul's insane order that all the priests be killed. In fact, David is prepared to put his own life on the line for this survivor of Saul's depravity. David typifies the characteristics of a godly king, though it will be a while before he himself is crowned. Now these final verses give us a wonderful opportunity to consider Jesus and to consider this Old Testament story's connection to the gospel of Jesus. As we reflect on the fact that David is a type of Christ, and as we consider David's virtue in guaranteeing Abiathar's life with his own, we see a beautiful picture of our King and Savior, Jesus. Jesus was prepared to protect the lives of his people with his own life. We read Jesus' words in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus willingly put his own life on the line for the safeguarding of his sheep, of his people. And his life was required to save them. The very heart of the gospel is declared in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, when Paul says, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also receive, that Christ died for our sins. Nothing has ever exposed humans to danger the way our own sins have. Our sins, that which we do or do not do that is contrary to God's law, they put us in danger of so much. They put us in danger of a futile life, according to 1 Peter 1.18. Sins make our life essentially meaningless. Sin also puts us in danger of our mortal enemy, the devil, according to 1 John 3.10 and 1 Peter 5.8. Further, sin has put us in danger of the wrath of God and the eternal punishment that will be the result of God's wrath against sin, according to Romans 1.18. But our king, King Jesus, has given his life for our safekeeping for the safety and the security of his sheep, the good shepherd laid down his life. But he didn't just die for our safekeeping, he rose again for our safety as well. John 10, 17 and 18 record the words of Jesus. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. 
Jesus would go on to die and he would go on to rise up from the dead that he might secure his people, that he might protect his sheep from sin and its evil consequences. The good news that the gospel proclaims is that for all his people, for all his sheep, Jesus, through his death and resurrection, provides safety and protection and security from the grave dangers of sin. And he does that unto our eternal life. Now, there is only one way that a person can know that they are one of his sheep. There's only one way for a person to know that he is one of the sheep for whom the good shepherd lays down his life and takes it up again. There's only one way to know if you are one of God's people whom Jesus protects. And it is declared throughout Scripture, but let's go to a verse that almost all of us will know, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We come under the protection and safekeeping of King Jesus when we turn from our sin and we turn to him in faith and trust. There is no other way. To not believe is to leave yourself exposed to a great, great danger. So let me exhort you this morning, believe in the great King Jesus. David's virtuous protecting of Abiathar points us to this beautiful truth. Saul's descent into evil came out of his insecurities. But we find the remedy for insecurity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Saul's descent into evil also reminds us once again that God is sovereign over everything. And David's virtues remind us of the virtues of Christ who protects those who put their faith in him at the cost of his own life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We continue to rejoice in these stories of Saul and David, which remind us, Father God, of our condition apart from a godly king who saves us. I pray your spirit would help any who don't know already that they are in grave danger, that they will see that because of their sin, they are exposed. And I pray that they will look to Christ, the good shepherd, the godly king, who secures and protects his people, who is the very fountain of safekeeping for his sheep, because he died and rose again, that their sins might be forgiven. I also pray, Father God, that we would continue to grow in our understanding of your meticulous sovereignty over everything. And I pray you would help us by your spirit to see in the gospel the remedy 
for our insecurities. I pray this in Christ's name.